0: Welcome. Um, Good to see you guys. I was a little scared, to be honest. When we first started at uh, 11 o'clock, 10.59, I looked back and it was like four people. And I was like, you know, I really love those weather people. Such a blessing to have a job where you could get it wrong all the time and still have a job. It's true. Don't don't be mad at me. It's true. Um, So this morning we're starting our Advent series uh, and we're calling it Celebration of God's Kingdom. One of the things that I've recognized every year as a church when we celebrate Advent is I did not grow up in a church that celebrated Advent. You know, we loved Christmas and Jesus was coming and that was great, but we didn't have this intentional four weeks of, of celebrating what Advent is. So for those of you who didn't grow up who grew up in a church like mine, so you're going to spend a couple of minutes talking about Advent itself. So Advent is the four Sundays before Christmas, um, and it's a season where the church, not just this church, but universally, so you have churches in Africa, South America, across Europe, um, Asia, they all focus on celebrating um, the coming, the expectation of Jesus coming into this world, of Christ being born into this world. We celebrate as a church, the worldwide, of Emmanuel, God with us. Eugene Peterson once said it beautifully that flesh and blood moved into our neighborhood. Advent also, though, and I think this is important for us to hold on to, um, Advent doesn't just speak of Jesus coming once or Jesus coming as a baby. The word Advent itself is actually akin to to the Greek and they call it Perusia and the Latin call it Adventus which is where we get Advent from because it also talked about Jesus' second coming the return of the king so when we think about this season as a whole I want us to be thinking about the fact that Christ came in a form as a baby the fact that Christ will come again to take us to glory and the fact that Christ is coming every day so how do we sum up what Advent is? It's a season of God fulfilling his promises now here at Hbrick we do Advent um, four weeks and we have four different themes that we celebrate. We talk about hope, we talk about peace, we talk about joy, and then we talk about love. So our four weeks, you know, this week we're focusing on hope. Next week we'll do peace, then joy, then love. Now, if you were with us last year, you'll remember, hopefully, what we did is we focus on three women in the story of Jesus' birth. We focused on Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, and our God of hope. And the lesson we kind of learned from Mary is that God chose Mary to bring his son into the world, And that's the same thing that God does with us. God has chosen you to bring his son into the world. The next one we focus on was Anna and peace from God. Now, most of us, when we think about peace, we might think about, you know, maybe a still river. Or maybe if you're a parent and all the kids are sleeping, you get to say, ah, you know. But peace from God is, is deeper than that. Peace from God is shalom, is the idea of making things right. And what the life of Anna showed us is that God gives us peace, not so we feel good, but so that we can go out and make the world right. That's what God's peace is for. Not so you can breathe again, but so your, your neighbor can breathe again. So, so the people around you can breathe again, so the people around you can see a world being made right. Then last year, we also talked about Elizabeth when we talked about joy. And we said joy is more than a feeling. Joy is more than feeling good. Joy is simply celebrating God's blessing and God's goodness. And then we ended with love. Christ in us, Christ for us, and Christ with us. So last year we did Mary and hope. So this year we'll do her husband, Joseph, and talk about hope. Last year we did Anna and peace. And this year we'll do her counterpoint, which is Simeon and peace. Last year we did Elizabeth and joy. And this year we'll do her husband, Zechariah, and joy. And then we'll end with love in Christ. All right, you got all that? All right, ready to go. We're going to pray now. Um, I'm actually going to be using a prayer that's found in Luke 1. It's called Mary's Magnifica. It's the song of Mary. It's a prayer that Mary um, burst out in song when God and the angel came and told her that she will give birth to a son. So pray with me. Let's pray together. Our souls glorify the Lord and our spirit rejoices in God, our Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servants. From now on, all generations will be blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for us. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their most inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant, the church, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants of faith forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me now to Matthew chapter 1. We'll have it up here on the screen so you can follow along. I'll be reading verses 18 to 25. So Matthew 1, 18 to 25, starting at verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. So when we talk about hope this morning, it's kind of important for us to understand the difference between our modern understanding of hope and, and what the ancients and the people of the Bible understood as hope. When we think of hope, it's kind of like wishful thinking. It's a desire. It's a want. You know, so for example, I'm going to break some hearts this morning, but that's okay. Um, for example, there might be a few of you who are Eagles fans, right? Like you might actually think the Eagles will make the playoffs. That's, that's wishful thinking, right? And then there's some of you who are our Pittsburgh Steelers fans and you might think they might make the playoffs that that's also wishful thinking now someone at the door came to me and they said well you're a Giants fan I was just like no 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 we're dead already I don't have wishful thinking um so yeah so hope is not wishful thinking when it comes to the bible that's how we understand hope in 2019 almost 2020 when we think about hope as like a dream or something that I hope that can happen it's it's mostly wishful thinking what the ancients understood as hope, what um, David and then Joseph here in our story this morning, what Noah, but then even Peter would have understood, what Huldah the prophet or, or Anna the prophet would have understood as hope is trusting in God. See, there's a difference. Hope to them was a Christian hope of trusting what God has done. That's his promises. And then trusting what God will do. That is his goodness, right? So hope wasn't just wishful thinking. It was trusting what God has done and what God will do. And here's something that's really beautiful about hope. The Bible talks about Jesus himself says that like all you need is is faith as small as a mustard seed. And when you understand that hope is trusting what God has done and what God will do, here's a beautiful, I I don't like calling it cycle because it just seems like it's repetitive and and it's not mind-blowing. To me, this is mind-blowing because this is how God seems to work with us. All it takes is a little bit of hope. If you trust in what God will do, God will use that little bit of hope to grow your faith. And then God will use that little bit of hope that grew your faith to give you even more hope. And it keeps going and going and going again. So what you do is you start off saying, God, I'm going to trust what you've done for me. And that's how I'm going to go into tomorrow. And when you go into tomorrow, because of that hope you have, God's going to give you faith. And because of that faith you have, God's going to give you more hope. And because of that more hope you have, you're going to get more faith and that's how it works. Hope is trusting and believing in what God has done and what God will do. That's very, very important because when you understand Joseph and how he understood the God of hope, you'll realize that Joseph is not going into this with wishful thinking. Joseph is not going into this as a dream or a reality that he hopes to one day walk into. Joseph is fully trusting what God has done and what God will do. Now, What about Joseph himself? What do we know about Joseph? Well, the first thing we know about Joseph is that he is from Nazareth. Now that's tricky because his family line is from David, so they're from Bethlehem. And Luke tells us he has to go up to Bethlehem for the census. But somewhere along the line, Joseph makes his home in, in Nazareth. And last year I tried to explain that Nazareth was like this small little town, and, and it's it's kind of like Oberlin, which like ten of you might know where that is, right? If you go to the Harrisburg Wall and you just keep walking or driving, I guess a mile straight, you'll hit Oberlin, right? This very, very small town Town. So I was looking for a West Shore um um descriptive of what Oberlin would be or like something as small because you know I'm a well rounded man, you know? So I was trying to look at the West Shore and I was like, Oh, it's probably like Dillsburg. And here's what I found out. Dillsburg would be a bustling metropolis compared to Nazareth. Nazareth had 400 people, maybe 500. That's the estimate of this town that Jesus was from. It was a working class town. But here's the thing that's most interesting about Nazareth. And you'll start to see this in the story of Jesus. It's almost as if God knew what he was doing. It's almost as if he kind of planned this all out perfectly. Because as small as Nazareth was, Nazareth happened to be one of those towns that was on all the major highways of the known world. So when God chose this little town that's the size of Oberlin or 20% of Dillsburg... People from Africa and Asia, people from Europe and that known Middle East, they all would have somehow, in traveling, crossed through Nazareth. It's almost as if God was saying, if I'm going to place my son anywhere, I'm going to place him in the center of where the world is coming. It's almost as if God knows what he's doing. That's Nazareth. That's where Joseph makes his home. The second thing about Joseph, and you'll see it in this Matthew passage, is tricky. You know, we hear that he's pledged. We hear that he's betrothed, and at the end, he takes her home as his wife, right? Now, again, we have to understand our modern understanding of marriage and how that process happens, but then also their understanding of marriage, because here's the thing. He's betrothed to Mary. Now, Joseph, people debate on how old Joseph was. You know, some things he was a lot older in life. Some people think he was like 18 to 20, because that's what, that's how old men were when they tended to be married. But they didn't just get married. What would happen initially was actually what the closest thing I could come up with, we could think of is it would be an arranged marriage, right? So the parents would get together and they would say, hey, this is what I think would be good for my son. And this is what I think would be good for my daughter. And they would try to make a match that way. Now, to our modern sensibilities and our Western maybe sensibilities we're like, oh, man, that just sounds weird. We're all about love. You know, we're all about, you know, like seeking your heart and all that. But, but then when you look at some of our divorce rates <laughs> and you look at how we value marriage and look at marriage in our culture, I'm not saying what they did was right. But I'm just saying before we judge them, we might want to think that maybe they knew what they were doing. Right. Because they didn't go into this and just saying, oh, I'm powerful. So I'm going to dictate because that's how we somehow like characterize it. Right. Like it's just like it was this male dominated society, obviously. So it's like they just force people into things. No, 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 no. It was parents who actually says that this is for the rest of your life. This is for our family continuing on. Remember, this is a culture that it's all about continuing on to the next generation. You know, in our culture, it's do better than your parents. In their culture, it's inheritance. It's our family going down. So they held that very, very tightly. But here's another sample of grace that I missed for years. So not only would the parents or sometimes a matchmaker make the match together, Once they made that decision, that was good for them, but it wasn't necessarily good for the young woman, right? So what would happen is the dad would come to uh, his daughter and say, hey, I have found this match for you. Is this good? And she had the choice to say yes or no. If she said yes, then they're betrothed. If she said no... Sorry, parents, you don't know what you're doing, start over, right? And they would come again. So the first step was a match would be made for how do we continue on our generation. The second step is if the girl said yes, then they're betrothed. What does this betrothal look like? So the betrothal is interesting because it's a year, it's like a long engagement. But the tricky part about this engagement is everyone in your culture thinks you're like husband and wife, but you're not husband and wife. You don't live together. Remember when Jesus says, in my father's house and many, many rooms, if it were not so I wouldn't have told you? In this year of betrothal, the guy would go and literally build a room on his side of his father's house. And when that room was ready and his father says, yes, now the room is ready. You can go get your wife. That's when they would be married. So this year of betrothal was interesting because culturally they would consider you husband and wife, which is why at the end of our passage it says Joseph took home his wife right? Even though we're like, well, they're not married yet. Well, that's culture. That's how they understood it. So you have three steps here. Engagement, which is a match made together. Then you have betrothal, which is this year that you have pledged to be together, and then you would have marriage. The other thing about betrothal that's a little bit stronger than engagement is there was only one way you could break a betrothal, and that was divorce, so again, it helps you understand where Joseph might be coming at in our passage, right? Because maybe it was just me as a kid. It's just like, well, if they're not married yet, how's he gonna get divorced? Or is he gonna, like, why would he marry her just to divorce her, right? That doesn't make sense. But again, in that culture, it's engagement, betrothal, marriage. Before the betrothal, though, that year of betrothal, the only way to break off the engagement was through divorce. Now, another thing that's interesting about Joseph, and I think, <laughs> Most of Christianity, especially the Catholics, but most of Christianity has a pretty high view of Mary, right? She is the one who birthed Christ into the world. She's the mother of God. And and, and it's great. Joseph gets like a couple Catholic schools named after him, right? Like that's what Joseph gets. Like, I mean, it is still a popular name, but if you look at anything theologically, whether it's Protestant or Christian, Anabaptist, whatever that Lutheran, whatever form you come from, Mary is always almost on this higher plane. And the highest that Joseph can get, it's like, well, he's a saint. You know, St. Joseph. But this morning, I think we got to look at Joseph a little bit deeper because I think Joseph teaches us how to have hope in our world. Now, the thing about Joseph that I want you to hold on to is he's also worthy. He's also favored. He's also highly chosen by God. So we said this is a culture of matchmaking. With Joseph and Mary, it wasn't just their parents who agreed. It wasn't just the matchmaker who did it. It was God himself. And how we see that is in Joseph's line. Joseph is not just a random carpenter from Nazareth who was picked. Joseph is a son of David. Joseph is from the royal line of David through Solomon himself. Now to us, that's not a big deal, right? To the Jewish people, that's a huge deal. In fact, Herod, who we'll read in Luke through, who becomes his villain, is killing all the babies, Herod was a half Jew. And because he knew that as a half Jew, that would be judged against him, you know what he did? He destroyed all the records he could find because he's just like, if you're going to look at me down because I'm a half Jew, then nobody gets to be Jew. I'm burning everything, right? So to them, your heritage was so important. So when God chose Joseph, and yes, God chose Joseph for this work, when God chose, Joseph he chose someone from the royal line of David to us that's not a big deal to anyone reading this story would be like, man, I just thought that guy was a carpenter like you tell me that's David's son that's amazing The second thing about this is that you know God not only was intentional in picking Joseph he was intentional in picking Mary because when we get to Luke and we got to Mary 's genealogy, we find that Mary is also from the line of David. Except she doesn't come through the kingly line, the royal line. She comes through the priestly line. And she actually comes through Nathan, who's another son of David. So God is not just intentional about picking Joseph and Mary, about placing them in Nazareth, the cross corners of the world, but he's intentional in saying, this son of mine that will come is royalty, but he's also a priest. God seems to be like he knows what he's doing. right. The last thing about Joseph I want us to hold on to is that he was faithful to God. And this is hard for us to read because we're like going into this passage like, well, didn't he want to divorce her? You know, like this doesn't seem like a nice guy. Joseph is faithful to God. He's favored. He's chosen, but he's firm in his belief. Whatever God asked him to do, that's what he wants to do. So now we get to Matthew chapter one. And in Matthew chapter 1, the birth of Jesus is interesting because, again, I'm not a big fan when people make generalities about men and women. You know, usually they're wrong, right? But in this, I found to be sometimes true. And maybe you'll believe it, maybe you won't. But sometimes I found that, you know, um, sometimes women tend to remember more details, about, you know, important events than than some men do. Now, I know there's like three men who are like, well, I remember the details all the time. God bless you. Great for you. But generally speaking, women remember more details. And if you have that understanding, you're able to see the difference between Matthew and Luke's version. Luke gives you a whole scene, right? Like most of what we know about the birth of Jesus and the Christmas story, it comes from Luke, which most people argue that's Mary's version, When you get to Matthew chapter 1, we get like seven or eight verses. And and so a lot of commenters say like, no, this is actually from Joseph's perspective. That's what's happening here. What's interesting, though, is before we get Joseph's perspective on Jesus's birth, we have 17 verses of genealogy, which to most of us, we skip over if we grew up in church or we read it really quickly. Or if we want to make ourselves feel good, we butcher the names to make ourselves sound smarter and we just keep it moving because we're like, yeah, genealogy, great. But what I want us to understand is that Matthew, everything he does is intentional and he breaks down Jesus's genealogy in three different forms. Right now, there's some people who actually argue this because they got nothing else better to do, um, that it's 14, 14, 14 generations or 13, 15, 13 or 15, 13, 13. Like they argue this. There's like big papers you can read about this, about how the breakdown is. That's not really that important. The breakdown is there's three of them. The first one that Matthew is saying is that the first generation of man that you need to remember is Adam and Eve. That God created this world. He spoke it into existence. And then when he came to man, he says, you are the highlight of my creation, mankind. Man and woman together, you are made in my image. You are made and designed for me. You belong to me and I belong to you. That's the first thing that God wanted us to know. Then the second generation looks at what happens when sin comes into the world and there's brokenness and the shalom is broken and mankind is far from God yet God still raises up a people, a remnant before him and makes David its greatest king and in that generation God says I still have hope for you I will still work through you and I will work through you to bring forth my son and that third generation is Jesus' generation where God says it's not about Israel failing, it's not about you being in exile it's about my son Jesus Christ who will come from you to bless the world that's what Matthew does in these things the second thing about genealogy that's really important and I missed this for years is that Matthew is intentionally saying Jesus is for all most of us when we understand Jesus we say yeah he's Israel's messiah Matthew would push back and be like did you read the genealogy because you didn't and if you did, you didn't get it. Because Matthew is saying that Jesus doesn't belong to Israel from the very beginning. How God has made him, chose the appointed time, designed him who his parents are. Everything that God did proves that Jesus isn't just for Israel. He's for the world. How do we know this? Well, when you look in Jesus' genealogy, remember I said, it's important to be a Jewish Jew, to trace all your records back. Matthew puts all his records here, but he includes Rahab, who's from Jericho. And Ruth, who's from Moab. So he's not hiding the fact that Jesus isn't Jewish Jew. He is blatantly saying, no, 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 no. Jesus might be Israel Messiah, but he's from the world and he's for the world. Everyone has a say in who this Messiah is. Jesus is not just the Messiah of Israel. He's the Messiah of the world. And you see it even in his family DNA. The second one that's kind of interesting that he does, when you get to Luke, when Luke goes into Mary's genealogy, and I say Mary's genealogy because there's different characters, right? Because he traces Jesus' birth through Nathan, the priestly thing. That's Mary's genealogy. And she doesn't even really get mentioned in her genealogy. Because it was normal to talk about the men in the genealogy. Matthew doesn't do that. Matthew names, yes, Rahab from Jericho, Ruth from Moab. But he also names Bathsheba, and he names Tamar. Four different women. So one thing Matthew is saying is like, Jesus belongs to the world. The second thing Matthew is intentionally saying is that, no, 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 the family of Jesus... Is not just the men who were important, but every single person matters. Every woman matters. He didn't have to put the women in, but he intentionally puts them in to say that the birth of the Savior didn't just come through women, but their names get to be put in the book so we can remember that in the kingdom of God, men and women are equal together. That's the second thing he does in genealogy. The third thing he does, and I love this part, is He doesn't struggle like we struggle with who's a good follower of God and who's not. Who's a saint and who's a sinner. If you read through those people in Jesus' genealogy, it's hard to really pick out who's perfectly saintly and who's perfectly a sinner, right? Like you read through and what Matthew is saying is that the worst thing that you've done doesn't disqualify you from being working for the purposes of God. The worst thing that you've done or how your world describes you doesn't cut you off from being a member of God's kingdom for doing God's work. And I love that. And that should give you at least a breath of fresh air. At least it should put hope or something in your wings to say that like, oh my gosh, how wonderful it is that the worst thing I've done doesn't count against me because Jesus has not only cleansed me, but God can still use me. Matthew is saying, Everyone matters. Jesus is for the world. Women matter. I will prove it by putting them in here. But everyone matters. And it doesn't matter if you consider yourself a saint or sinner. God can not only cleanse you and redeem you. God can use you. So when we think about Jesus coming into the world, let's do a recap here. He's matched with parents who are chosen by God from the royal line of David, from the priestly line of David. He's placed in Nazareth, which happens to be this road. There's this town that sits around all these roads of the world. And he comes at this appointed time to be God's agent when Israel is crying out, for salvation. When Israel is tired from being under Rome's yoke, when Israel needs an agent of God. So that's your background. That's your 17 verses. Then we get to verse 18. Now, when we say this is Joseph's point of view, I want us to point out that Joseph is being very, very logical in this passage, right? He loves Mary. And I even said in the first service, I think Mary's the love of his life. And the reason I think that is because not only, you know, if they've been perfectly matched by God, they might not even had all this together in their heads, but they know that their parents or the matchmaker put them together. And they've had almost a year of this betrothal of getting to know each other and planning their life together. And Mary shows up and Mary says, I'm pregnant. And it's from the Holy Spirit. And Joseph has to live with that. You know, I'm pregnant and it's from the Holy Spirit. Now, Some of you might just be better followers of Jesus than Joseph was, right? But it's very, very natural if your partner comes to you and says, I'm pregnant from the Holy Spirit, that you say, well, maybe we need to have a conversation with this Holy Spirit, right? It's a very, very natural thing for you to be like, are you sure it's the Holy Spirit? Because I don't think it's the Holy Spirit. But what we see in this passage is Joseph doesn't believe Mary's story. He doesn't. And it's not because he's a bad person. It's because it kind of doesn't make sense, right? Like, let's be honest. Like, if your spouse came to you and says, you know, yeah, I'm pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Or if you're a woman, your spouse came to you and be like, she's pregnant. The baby's going to look like me, but it's from the Holy Spirit. You would have questions too. I want us to look at Joseph as a real human being. because I think that's helpful for us to understand hope. I want us to not just over-spiritualize this and be like, well, it's from God, it's the Holy Spirit, I get it, right? We still don't really get it 2,000 years later, and he's forced to get it in that moment. But Joseph isn't necessarily buying it. But I think where you see the faithfulness of Joseph is that by right, he could have divorced her then and there. He could have gone straight to to the rabbi or to his father or to her parents and say, hey, listen, um... She's pregnant by some kind of Holy Spirit. I'm not sure who this Holy Spirit is, but the union is off. But Joseph thought to himself, you know what? If I divorce her, she's now a teenage, unwed, pregnant mother. In 2019, that's a hard place to be. Now imagine 2019 plus years ago in that culture and society, Joseph is faithful to not just God and what he thought was right, but he looked at her and says, you know what? If I do that, her life is ruined. So I'm just going to try to do this as quietly as I can. And I love this because Joseph doesn't verbalize. He doesn't put her on blast. He doesn't put it public. He does all this rationalizing in his head. And personally, I love that because I'm not one of those people who, when I'm mad at God, just yell at him. Right? Because people think I, I'm a little wild if I do that. Like, if you walked in, I was just yelling at the wall, you'd probably want me to talk to somebody else, right? Um, so a lot of times, how I argue with God is in my head. Right? I go back and forth. I'm like, Do you really think this Are you serious? Joseph comes to this rationalization in his head. But what I love about it is he thinks he's doing what's best. He's like, you know what? I don't want to embarrass her. I don't want to embarrass her family. I don't want to ruin her life. I just have to figure out how to break off this betrothal, how to put her away quietly. Because I don't want her to have a ruined life. Joseph thinks that, but God sees it. And that should be terrifying for some of us. (laughs) That God sees what we think. But for Joseph and for us this morning, it should give us hope. Because Joseph goes to sleep one night and the angel of the Lord comes to him and the angel says, Joseph, Mary's story checks out. It's right. And not only is that son from the Holy Spirit, you will call him Jesus, which means Jesus Yahweh saves. God is salvation. God saves. And now as a kid, I struggle with this because I put so much energy on like, well, but how exactly did the Holy Spirit get her pregnant? Like, did he just like make a formula? Like what happened here? Right. But I think if you go back to what Joseph understood about the Holy Spirit, it'll help explain this because in his culture, this is what Joseph knew about the Holy Spirit. One, the Holy Spirit brings truth. Two, the Holy Spirit enables us to see truth. Three, the Holy Spirit is God's creative agent in the world, and four, the Holy Spirit creates life. This thousands of years, Christians have argued about the virgin birth. Joseph never did. Because if the Holy Spirit brings truth and the angel tells him the spirit is working in Mary, he believed it. He believed it because he knew the spirit is the one who helped him understand it. He believed it because he believed that the spirit is what hovered over the earth as God spoke the world into existence. He believed it because he believed the Holy Spirit was the author of life. And here's the great irony for some of us who struggle with the virgin birth. We accept the resurrection, but we struggle with the virgin birth. The same God who raised Jesus from the dead. The same God who can speak the world into existence is the same God who put Jesus in Mary's womb because he's the God of life. And Joseph accepts this. And Matthew says, isn't this wonderful? Look at Isaiah's prophecy about the virgin birth. But what I love is that Joseph doesn't see Isaiah's prophecy. He simply sees hope. And what hope is, is trusting God for what God has done and trusting God for what God will do. Joseph believes that Jesus is the son of God because he believes that God is spirit. He believes that God gives life. He believes that God is in control. Joseph hopes in what God did and what God will do. So if we want a definition for hope this morning, I think a really good and simple one is simply trusting God for what he has done and trusting God for what he will do. Because here's the thing. Hope cannot be wishful thinking. Now, I say this to all the parents, grandparents, and gift givers this season. This will work perfectly on your kids, you know? When your kids want something that's overly expensive, like, Mommy, I really want that for Christmas. Grandpa, I really want that for Christmas. You need to look them straight in the eye and say, Son or daughter, Hope is not wishful thinking. It'll go over really well, I promise, you know? And if it doesn't, just tell him, Pastor Woody's not here. Just tell him, Pastor Woody said that, and it's good, right? But I think this is important for us to realize because Joseph now joins Mary's story. And this is an incredible story that they now have to take back to this little town of Nazareth. 400 people. That's about our church, (laughs) You know, that's about our church. So they now have to come back to this 400 people. And that's their story, that the Holy Spirit gave them a baby. Like that's their story. Imagine if they only went back with wishful thinking. Like, I just hope everybody will believe me. I just hope everybody just thinks that's true and they have great faith. And it's not. They did not go back with wishful thinking. They went back with hope. And that's how they were able to plant into that community because they trusted what God had done and what God will do. You know, C.S. Lewis puts it like this. Hope is one of the theological virtues. This means that a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking. But one of the things a Christian is meant to do, it does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. They didn't go back with wishful thinking. They went back with saying, Mary is going birth to the Messiah. The world will be changed through this son that she will bear. They went back with thinking that God is working in her and he's working for the world. They didn't go back with wishful thinking. They went back with saying, God has worked in Mary and we're excited about what God will do because what I want us to hold on to is when we talk about the creation of God's kingdom the creation isn't built on wishful thinking now I don't have a green thumb right I have a plant in my office and they tell me I have to water it once a week I'm doing well right it's only three weeks in so don't get your hopes up but I'm doing well with it right now if I just looked at my plant and just had wishful thinking if I just said you need to grow I wish you could grow. I will work for you to grow, but it's like yelling at you and you will grow. It won't work. I think we need to do the same thing we think about hope. we think about trusting God, you can't just say, I want to trust God more and not do the work. You can't just say, I want to believe in God more and not spend time with God. You can't say, I want God to, to give me more and more hope and, and, and not have hope in God in the little things you can trust him in because that cycle or that pattern remains the same. Trusting God, he will grow it a little bit and give you more faith and that more faith will give you more hope with that more hope will give you more faith. And that's how it keeps rolling on and on and on. The kingdom is not built on wishful thinking, it's built on hope. Hope is trusting what God has done and trusting what God will do. Let's talk about that. Hope is trusting what God has done. Joseph didn't know the future. He couldn't have. He's going back into a community that's the size of our church with this incredible story. He didn't know how it was going to be accepted, how everyone was going to do it. But you know what he knew? He knew God. And we say hope is trusting what God will do. Sometimes we need to remind ourselves of what God has done for us. Sometimes we need to remind ourselves of how God has saved us. And I'm not just talking about salvation on the cross. I'm talking about how you got through last week or the year that we just finished. How you got through and God has shown his goodness and carried you through. Martin Luther King said it like this. Faith is taking the first step even when you don't see the whole staircase. That's hope. The grandpappy Pabby from Arendelle, the outer reaches of Arendelle, and later Queen Anna, Anna, sorry. And if I ruined the movie for you, I'm sorry. You should have seen it by now. They both said, all you can do is the next right thing. That's hope. When you trust what God has done, all you can do is the next right thing. Hope is not seeing the whole staircase. It's not. It's taking the next step. That's what hope is. Trusting what God has done, take the next step. Whatever the next right thing is, that's what you need to do. Because the kingdom is built not on wishful thinking, but it's built one step, one hope at a time. The third thing about hope we said is hope is trusting what God will do. Joseph had fear. I want us to understand this. He's going back into a community with a pregnant betrothed wife and the only story he has is the spirit came upon her. Joseph had fear. That's very, very natural. But Queen Elsa, again from Arendelle, teaches us fear can't be trusted. And if that doesn't work for you, go to great Nelson Mandela who said, may your choices reflect your hopes and not your fears. Because here's the thing. We live in a culture that's building kingdoms upon fears. And we build lives upon fears we oppress. We build lives upon fear we hurt. We build lives upon fear we ostracize. We build lives upon fear we (laughs) build up our soapboxes so that we can fall off. God calls us to hope. We must make choices based on hope. Fears cannot rule us. The Bible does say perfect love casts out fear. But this morning, having hope in God means we are going to make our choices to trust God and not our fears. We're going to live our lives trusting what God will do and not the fear of what might happen. And the last thing about hope that I think I love the most is hope is simply that God came in the form of a baby my seminary said mailings and one of the mailings i got this week said you know many babies have grown up to be kings but only one king came as a baby jesus christ the god of this universe comes in the form of a baby and that gives us hope what i love is that last year we said mary was chosen and tasked by god to bring his son into the world and when we go back to joseph we realize that because of his faith in what God had done and because of his trust in what God will do, that he too gets to walk into that knowledge that God trusted him to raise his son in this world. And that's incredible. But what's incredibly humbling to me is that same charge that God gave Mary and God gave Joseph is the same charge that God gives us. It's not enough for us to be little Christ and to be examples of Christ. God has tasked all of us to bringing his child into this world. Jesus is physically in heaven, making heaven good for you, perfect for you. That's what he's doing. In my father's house are many, many rooms. That's what he's doing. What he's left behind is his spirit and you, his church. It is your job. God has tasked you to bring in Christ to your family, to your friends, to the people you walk by on the street, to every single one you interact with. We are tasked with doing the same. Now, it's hard for me to preach a a sermon on hope and trusting God without at least giving a couple minutes to say, what has God done for us? I don't know all your stories. I know a few of them. and I know God has been very, very good to you. But what I'm going to talk about now is what God has done for all of us because I think that's kind of important. The very first one is that God created us. I don't know if we dwell enough on that. He spoke the world into existence but took his time to craft you took his time to make you you. Just like with Joseph and Mary, he chose that appointed time and that perfect time to to bring Jesus into the world. He did the same thing for you. Who you are not only matters to God, it's been destined by God. You were made for this moment. You were made for this time. And if that wasn't enough, he came into this world to show you how to live and please God. And that's amazing to me because i get to follow jesus and in following jesus the spirit comes and lives in us and transforms us into the image of his son and we get to live to please the god of the universe and if that wasn't enough that same jesus who created us who spoke the world into existence who formed us who now walks the earth who walked the earth to show us how to please god that same jesus went up to calvary's cross and a couple of years ago, the spirit put this word in me and I'll be singing it for the rest of my life. Jesus went to Calvary to prove once and for all that the blood which flowed from his veins matters even more than the blood that flows in our veins. Jesus went to Calvary to not just die for our sins, but to bring God's shalom into the world. Jesus went to Calvary. So that we can never say, I am not good enough. So that we can never say, I'm not perfect enough. So that we can never say, I do not matter. You not only matter, he went to Calvary to prove that you matter. And if that wasn't enough, Jesus went down to the pits of hell. And on the third day, that same life force, the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead. To show that once and for all, sin has been defeated. Once and for all, salvation has come. Once and for all, Christ is back. And if that wasn't enough, if that wasn't enough to create us, to walk the earth, to show us to please God, to die on the cross for our sins, to be raised on the third day, Jesus has gone to heaven and won't come back until it's perfect for you. That should humble you above all things. I love seeing the beauty of God in creation. I grew up in a city so when there's two stars in the sky, I jump and celebrate because I see two, right? Some of you grew up not in the city so you saw stars all the time. It's not a big deal. When I see two, it's a great night. But as great as this creation is, it pales into heaven that he's been working on for over 2,000 years. And if that wasn't enough, Jesus will one day come back for you and take you to glory with him. Heaven has always been coming down. Heaven is coming down now. So we talk about hope this morning. We talk about trusting what God has done this morning. I want you to trust that he created you. I want you to trust that he came and lived and showed you how to live to please God. I want you to trust that he died for you. I want you to trust that he was raised for you. I want you to trust that he's working on heaven for you. And I want you to trust that he will come back for you. That's hoping God. Hope has to be this invitation to trust what God has done and to trust what God will do. Now, I'm going to invite up the worship team. We're going to end with that song that we sang. I think it was the last one. And I love this line. I think it was in the bridge. And we sang it like this. We said, we're waiting on the promise for the one who lights the darkness, bending low to be among us. Bring your glory in the highest, Jesus. Jesus. We are blessed this morning, those of us who have chosen to follow Jesus, that we no longer have to wait on the promise. We've realized the promise through the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus has come for us. But we're going out into a world that's still waiting on the promise. And God has chosen you to bring that promise to the world. We no longer have to wait on the light coming into the darkness because Jesus, before he left, says, yes, I'm the light of the world. But now that I'm gone to heaven, you are the light of the world. We no longer just celebrate Jesus bending down among the lowly to walk among us because he's left us, his church, to walk among his people. If this world feels cold, we are the warmth. If the world does not know the love of God, we are the love of God. If this world does not know compassion, we are to be his compassion. If this world does not know true righteousness, and I'm talking about the righteousness that they hunger for, not, not just food, but the righteousness that, that makes the world right, Jesus calls us to partner with the Spirit to bring that righteousness, that shalom into the world. We sing this morning, Bring your glory in the highest, Jesus. And we can sing that because we have hope in what Christ has done and what Christ will do. So please stand and sing with us. I'd like to also invite up the intercessors. We'd love to pray for you for anything you've got going on. You know, maybe you just want some hope. Maybe you've never made that decision to follow Jesus. I want to please invite you up. We'd love to pray for you. But here's the other amazing thing is that the spirit is right where you are. If you don't want to come up, let God talk to you. But whatever you got going on, we'd love to pray for you. So please come up, and we'd love to pray. So stand in with us, sing together.
1: We are waiting on the promise for the One who lights the darkness. We need those to be among us. Bring Your glory in the highest. G, we are waiting, we are waiting on the promise For the one who lights the darkest bending low to be among us Bring your glory in the highest G, hear the angels sing, hear the angels sing this Hope for everyone to announce our King. There's hope for everyone. What good news they bring. There's hope for everyone. Angels sing this. Hope for everyone. They came from afar. They came from afar. There's hope for everyone. Watchmen saw the stars. Hope for everyone. Shepherds heard the choir. This hope for everyone from afar. This hope for everyone. We are waiting. We are waiting on the promise for the one who lights the darkness, bending low to. Bring Your glory in the highest, Jesus. And we are waiting on the promise for the One who lights the darkness, letting oh, low to be among us. Oh, bring Your glory in the highest, Jesus. Oh, come, let us adore. Come, let us adore this hope for everyone on the manger lord this hope for everyone what are you waiting for this hope for everyone come adore this hope for everyone we are waiting we are waiting on the promise for the one who lost the darkness Letting low to be among us, bring your glory, bring your glory in the highest. Gee, we are waiting, we are waiting on the promise for the one who lies his dark. Clouds. Coming on the clouds, there's hope for everyone. Hear the trumpet sounds, there's hope for everyone. All the heaven shouts, there's hope for everyone.
0: All the clouds, there's hope for everyone. Let's pray together. Our Father, our God, we thank you indeed that there's hope for everyone. Thank you that how even in the birth of Jesus, in his DNA, you have the DNA of the known world at that time. How in the DNA you had men and women to show that we all matter in your kingdom. How in the DNA you had that Jesus not only belonged to Israel, but he belonged to the world. But God, I thank you for the hope that we can have. That the hope is not simply our wishful thinking or our dream or some intangible thing we can never wrap our arms around. God, help hope to be us trusting what you've done for us. Help hope to be us trusting what you will do for us. So, God, we thank you that we have realized the promise of your son, Jesus Christ, into a world that's hungering for that promise, for that truth, for that goodness, for the one and only one who can satisfy. Lord, help us to take and bring that Christ to them. God, we thank you that we not only know that your son came to be light in the darkness, but in him the light of the world has now called us the light of the world. So, God, help us to be lights who shine for your glory. Help us to be lights who are so scared that we hide under a bushel or, or we hide under ourselves or our or our failures, God. Help us to be lights who live for your glory, who shine for your glory, who live to make your kingdom come. And God, we thank you for your example of how you bent low to come to this earth to show us how to live in a way to please God, how to live in a way to bring shalom into the world. God, help us to do the same. Help us to bring where we see brokenness, help us to bring healing. Where we see struggle, help us to bring life. Where we see darkness, help us to bring light. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the glory of God, that you are God in the highest. And we thank you that we're not just blessed by you, but we're called by you to bring you into this world. So God, give us more hope this morning and let that hope grow to faith and let that faith grow to more hope, which grows to more faith in your holy and precious name. Amen. God bless you all.